Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we are on the phone with our guest, Pam Peroni. Hey, Pam, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Pam's calling in from St. Charles, Missouri. And thank you for taking some time out of your day to talk to us about your experience with pancreatic cancer, Pam. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to share. Well, on that, as we always allow our guests kind of the first opportunity or the first question that we ask is, why don't you give our audience listening at home a little bit of your background and, and what brings you to us here today? And you can go as far back as you want or um, share as much as you want or as little as you want. Sure. Um, okay, so this is my husband's story, basically through my my voice and my life and my eyes. And um, it started in October. It was like October 23rd. He, well, October 30th, 30th actually diagnosed it. But he thought he had the stomach flu, um, is not one to miss work, skip work, goes when he's sick. Um, he was coming home from work with just really bad stomach pain. He did have a history of diverticulitis. Um, first thought it was the stomach flu, and then it was just really weird. He was, I think he vomited maybe one or two times, too, and it was just really strange. So I was thinking maybe it was diverticulitis. We went to the, to the doctor. And he wanted me to go with him, <laughs> which was another red flag. Um, and um, he went to the doctor. The doctor goes, yeah, I don't think it's the diverticulitis. He's like, let's get a CAT scan. So they did a CAT scan. Nothing came up. Um, they said, yeah, well, you know, nothing came up. We probably want to get you back for blood work. He didn't go get blood work. Um, he ended up getting really sick, going into the emergency room, um, and... Uh, was diagnosed actually with jaundice, and his liver count was extremely high. My daughter is a nurse, um, so we went to a hospital that she was not at. Anyway, shorten it up a little bit. Um, did not stay the night. They released us. They actually told us that it was probably hepatitis, which I knew it was not hepatitis because um, he had had the hepatitis vaccines. But we left the hospital, went back the next day because he was even sicker than ever. Um, and then my, we went to the hospital that my daughter worked at, and she got some surgeons involved. And right away, they knew something wasn't right. So, um, well, he got the, some tests scheduled to get an endoscopy. And then um, they came back. I think that they saw something in there. And so further testing was done, found out that there was there was a growth in his bile duct, and they had to do the, the the testing with the ultrasound on the end to see if to get a biopsy of it and to see if they could see further. And the biopsy came back, and they said that it was cancerous. And at this point, they didn't know if it was um, cancer of the bile duct or cancer of the pancreas. Mm-hmm. And um, had some more testing done, and or actually no. So then, then we. They realized that it was in the, so let's back up a little bit. So they did find out that there was a tumor there. And they went back and kept looking at the CAT scan, and they still at this point, even knowing where the tumor was and the growth was, could not see it on the CAT scan. So that's how um, hard it is to diagnose. And they said that the pancreas is really feathery, especially at the head of the pancreas. And that's why on the, the CAT scan that you cannot see it, because that featheriness um, disguises that tumor, so you can't see it. And the and the tumor that was in the bile duct was so small that you couldn't even see it on the CAT scan. So anyway, we got in touch with the surgeon to go in and do that. He was able to do the surgery. It was just in the head of his pancreas. Um, so the whipple surgery on November seventh, which it felt like eternity because October twenty third was diagnosed. November seventh, he had the whipple surgery. Um, so Pam, I'm just going to jump in here real quick. So yeah. all of this, yeah, that that is that that was going to be one of my questions here is like you're going through all this diagnostic testing and you're going from an endoscopic ultrasound to CT scans and then probably back to uh, an ERCP where they actually can needle biopsy the tumor and the bile duct uh, or they may have done that the first time around. So there's, there's a lot of going back and forth. So literally within like two weeks though, 
you're able to get so from 10:30 to 11:7 so it probably seemed like an eternity during that time but also that wasn't that long of a time right it wasn't and um you know and two we went so we're in St. Louis Missouri St. Charles is right outside of St. Louis Missouri so we have amazing hospitals and um we went down there's only one there was uh, only one hospital that did the ERCP with the ultrasound and we got in i think it was the next morning and I'm sure my daughter being a nurse had a little bit of pull and a little bit of help with that. So anybody going through that, if you know a nurse that can connect you to with good people, take advantage of that. Um, and he referred us to a, a surgeon for a Whipple surgery down at Barnes-Jewish Hospital. And my daughter asked around and she's like, no, 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 no. She's like, everybody is saying, go to this other doctor that's at a smaller hospital. He actually left the big hospital, went out here, and he does these, like, you know, twice a week. You need to go to him. He's the best one in St. Louis. So the biggest hospital doesn't always mean the best doctor is my point on that. Um, So ask questions. Ask how many they've done. I think if you're going to get a Whipple surgery, you want to make sure that you're getting somebody that has been doing it for a while and does them more than once or twice a year. So we were able to get into him. and then had the local surgery on November 7th, um, found out that it was, he's basically stage three. Um, it was in the head of the pancreas and uh, into the bile duct, and it was actually starting to protrude on a um, portal vein that goes to your liver. Mm-hmm. So they had to remove the portal vein, and this is why you want to be with a good surgeon too is because not all surgeons could have done this. They had to remove the portal vein. They took one out of his leg and built a new one. Um, and they did find it in four lymph nodes. So uh, they said that if it would have just been in the head of the pancreas and no lymph nodes, that he probably could have went without chemo and radiation. Uh, but since it was in the lymph nodes, and he did have some positive margins too, that he had to do the chemo and the radiation. So the Whipple surgery... Um, is a beast. He was in the hospital for 11 days straight, uh, had a drain coming out of it, out of his stomach, went home with the drain. Um, he probably didn't eat for seven days. He was out of the hospital in 11, 11 days, but the next three months was filled with being out of the hospital for four days, going back in for a week, being out of the hospital for three days, going back in for a week. So it was it really honestly three, three full months of that. I mean, he had everything from, like, infections, inflammation, sepsis, high white blood cells, extreme dehydration. He lost 35 pounds, I think, in the first three months. Um, extreme weight loss. It's, I mean, it's it's not for the faint of heart, let me tell you that. It's for the caregivers, too. I mean, as a caregiver, it's not, not for the faint of heart. It's, it's hard. Um, so... In January, he was able to start the chemo, and it was the, um, I think there's four or five of them with the 5-FU. The 5-FU treatment, yep. Yeah, yeah, and um, and his body did not like that either. Um, he had one treatment, started to run up that very first day. Um, he went into the hospital, I think, yeah, he had the one treatment, and you go, yeah, because that when you go home with it, you go home with the pack and it delivers it for like 48 hours, or yeah. 48 hours. Yeah. Yeah. The pump. And, um, yeah, ended up, ended up in the hospital with that, um, lost 20 pounds from the first treatment and got out. It was probably three weeks after the first one. He got it. He went in for the second one and put him in the hospital again, lost 20 more pounds. So he's up to like losing seventy five pounds at this point. Um, was it? And and your husband? Can I just jump in here uh, for a second, mm-hmm. Pam? So it's Steve is your husband, right? Yes, he is. So was he? Uh, I mean, I don't mean any disrespect here. You know, losing some people they lose. You know, some weight. It's actually a positive. Um, yeah. Was he a big guy or was he? You know. Yeah. I mean, he was. He's like five nine, and he was like at two twenty five. Yeah, so seventy five um, pounds is a lot then. That's a yeah. That's a that's a lot of weight. Yeah. So and you know, he was a lot of muscle. <laughs> he yeah. Was, he was a big guy, but he was 
very, he's in construction, he's a pipe fitter, so, I mean, he's the very broad shoulders. He, yeah. has, he had a lot of muscles, lots of all, all his muscles gone, you know. Um, I keep telling him we'll get it back, but. <laughs> so, um, so, so they stopped, they stopped that one and just put him on the um, Gemzar. Yep. Um, yeah. So they Stopped him, put him on the gym star. He was actually doing pretty good with it. And then, um, oh yeah, well, I, I missed a few things. He had, he had some. It, it was kind of like he is on the extreme. So they say that you can be ex- extreme with the chemo and the radiation, and even with the Whipple surgery, where like you have, you, you know, you just go to bed, start to back to work, you do your daily activities. You know, you might not feel that great to all the way like you're down, you're out, there's no going to work, there's no doing nothing. And that's basically where he has been. He has been, there's no possible way he can work. I mean, he's lucky he can get up and function. And, you know, if he's up for a couple hours a day, he's doing good. You know, if he's not in the hospital, he's doing good. <laughs> so that's kind of where we have been living our last nine months. And, um, and I'm not being negative about it. It's just, it's reality. It is, it is really a reality. Um, so I got sidetracked there, but, um, you were talking about the chemo treatments and just the not doing well on the five FU and then being shifted to the gems. Yeah. Yeah. So then he got the, so then he just went on the gems are, and he ended up with, he was doing pretty good. He put a little bit of weight back on. And in May, he got chemo induced, pneumonia, which is very rare. Um, he couldn't breathe. We went to the emergency room again. And this stay was actually longer than um, the Whipple stay. So that was and that was actually 14 days, and it was very serious. So chemo-induced pneumonia is different than regular pneumonia because um, regular pneumonia, it affects, like, one part of your lung, and there's one area. Like, if they do an X-ray or CAT scan or whatever, there's one area that, um, you know, is inflamed and you have the infection and his were both lungs, both upper chambers of both lungs. So he was on the most oxygen you could get on the floor without being into ICU. He was on massive steroids, massive antibiotics. Um, and then he went home after 14 days, he went home and he had to be on six weeks of steroids. He was done with antibiotics. So, so that has cleared up, but they even say with that, with the chemo-induced pneumonia, that um, that 50% of people don't recover from it. That wow. they have permanent damage from it. So, um, so they had to stop that chemo. Um, chemo does not like his body. <laughs> they had to stop that chemo. So then they went to chemo and radiation. Um, chemo radiation is supposed to be 28 days straight, and um, he, you know. He had to stop the chemo, and they continued to do the radiation. We were supposed to be done with the chemo and the radiation probably three weeks ago, and, like, he's even struggling getting through it. So he just got back from the, the doctor today, and um, and he was having side effects from it, um, you know, throwing up. And this is just from the radiation, throwing up, um, extreme fatigue, and... Um, Increased pain. He had to go back on the um, the extended release pain pills, yeah. and um, so they're putting it off until Monday and Tuesday. So that's where we are, and um, that is the medical side of it. There's so much more oh, <laughs> that I would actually like to share yeah, about no, the journey. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just have a question from the medical standpoint. Yeah. So after the Whipple, did they say, and I know like, the, so the, the protocol has changed a bit, right? So, you know, in, in previous, I mean, I've been doing this now almost 10 years and my dad had a Whipple surgery. He did six months of chemo and then they gave him a clean bill of health. And I know now sometimes with the, with the Whipple procedure patients, they will actually do chemotherapy prior to the surgery, have the surgery, and then they do chemotherapy after just to make sure that there's no stragglers or anything and they get everything. So after the Whipple surgery, did they tell you guys that there was maybe some meth somewhere else or was it just 
kind of like preventative, like, hey, let's make sure we get everything. We didn't see anything. We got everything. But just in case, we're going to put Steve through this protocol. Yes. So the surgeon, the surgeon was fairly certain he got everything. He, I mean, he pretty much told everybody, no, I think I got everything, which they say is a really good sign if the surgeon can say, no, I think I got everything. Um, so nothing has had metastasized. Um, and the reason why they put him through that was because um, his, he had four positive lymph nodes and because he had, it was kind of questionable margins. So when they, I guess, I'm a little confused on this, but I know when they take out the lymph nodes and they go back and do a biopsy, if there's positive margins, um, you know, they want to make sure that they hit you pretty hard, too. And the margins were questionable. So with the, as far as, um, when they say the positive margins, there was some uh, conversation between the surgeon, between the pathologist about about really where they a positive margin or not. So, but regardless, he would have done it anyway because of the positive lymph nodes. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's still a lot of debate. I'm not a doctor, and they don't profess to be an expert, but I think I know this yeah. well enough. And I will say, over the last ten years, as I mentioned previously. Like with my dad, he went in, he had his Whipple, and then he did the post-chemotherapy. And then the mm -hmm. protocol changed where they realized, hey, if we do chemotherapy prior, maybe we shrink everything and eliminate any stragglers and then do a Whipple, eliminate the main tumor, and then do post-treatment as well, just in case if there's any stragglers as well. And I, and I think that's still kind of evolving a bit. You know, clearly in what you just described, is not uncommon where patients struggle. And I hate to use the word struggle, but I think that's the reality with, with some of these treatments. Like 5-FU is a very toxic treatment and most patients yeah. don't fare very well. And, and you know, I know we're gonna talk about the other side of this, we're, we're sticking on the medical side, but that from a psychological standpoint, is so defeating, you know, I think for patients, you know, when they're given mm -hmm. these treatment protocols. But, you know, and, and I think in fairness, to the patient though, I don't think the doctors do a good enough job because in explaining the reality of it, because most people on that treatment don't fare well and they know that going in, right? Like we know, mm -hmm. I, I know enough now where, you know, in, in Florfluorinox is another highly toxic chemotherapy treatment that again, most people, and we've this is like probably going to be like episode 70 of our podcast. And we've had quite a few survivors, probably 40. We're probably closer to 50. And, you know, we always ask about protocols. And, and I think we may have had like one patient out of that that said they did really well on Flafluorinox. You know, wow. so, so you know, it, it, not everyone was on Flafluorinox, but, you know, just given the averages. So, you know, I think that's partly... You know, I've always said that the medical community has to get better, and there's a lot of things that there's cracks in. And, you know, this is just another example of maybe that, you know, this is something to be addressed at some point in the future, you know, is just to have, and I get where the physicians, and I'm, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus here, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, it, it's frustrating, and I can sense the frustration, Pam, because for Steve to, like, going through like you're going through you get up to this hill and then you just get pushed back down uh, oh, but that's yeah. that's quite common though and I think you know the reality is and maybe your daughter I don't know what kind of nurse she is but maybe if she's in, in oncology then she would know this is like that's just the reality with this disease right now it's unlike any cancer um, unfortunately you know, pancreatic cancer, just the, there is no effective treatment that works for everyone. There are certain treatments that patients tend to do very well, but it's, it's a different, you know, patients with BRCA do well on a particular protocol. And then there's this other classification of patients that do well, like I said, um, with certain treatments, you know, radiation is, is I've heard, I've not heard many patients, you know, a lot of patients, I should say, let me rephrase this, struggle with radiation when it comes to pancreatic cancer because it's unlike, if you really think about it from an atomic standpoint, your pancreas is right on your spine and they're shooting the radiation through your stomach. So it's gonna, yeah, as precise as the radiation is, it's still gonna 
go through your stomach and your innards and that just does not feel well. Unlike other cancers like a breast cancer where, you know, the breast tissue and, and breasts are on the pretty much on the outside. They don't have to go, they're not shooting you from the back to get to the breast, right. they're just shooting you from the front. Or like throat cancer, you know, thro- the throat is right there. And that causes a lot of issues because the throat is responsible for a lot of things, you know, for digestion right. and, and breathing and stuff like that. But, you know, the right. pancreas is just really, really complex. So right. I appreciate you sharing that with us because I, I think that's important for people who are listening at home to understand um, what happens and what goes on. And I think a lot of people probably can relate, Pam, to what you guys have gone through. So I want to shift gears here. And and before we go into the other side of the medical side, what's happening, what was life before? What were, you said Steve was a pipe fitter. You know, you mentioned a daughter. Do you have other children? I'd love for you to share some of that with our audience as well. Yeah, so we have been married as, 34 years, This it was 34 years this March, and we have three daughters and one son, our son's the youngest, um, she was a pipe fitter, um, worked out on the field, uh, actually, he, he was actually you know, the foreman on, on a lot of jobs, so um, before his diagnosis, we had just had a fourth grandchild, and we had two on the way when he was diagnosed, um, so... Um, life was, I mean, life was good. We were looking forward to retirement. Um, he was planning on retiring at age 60. I personally, I am a dental hygienist by trade, but I had, um, I had started a, with a network marketing company, a shampoo company, um, about, let's see. It was about three years before his diagnosis, and I was able to retire from my dental hygiene job um, because of this. And wow. our plan was to, I retired myself, and my plan was to retire him, and we were going to retire, and we were going to go get a beach house <laughs> with my business, and we were going to save, this, we were saving this money to do all this stuff. And, um, and life was good. I mean, we were you know, happily married and looking for, forward to retirement and um, making plans. And, um, you know, funny thing that you asked because, you know, looking back, I can see God's hand in all this. Here I am with my plans, or we are with our plans, and, you know, I'm going to retire myself, and I'm going to retire you, and um, we think we're setting ourselves up for our plan and God has a whole other plan for us. And, and looking back, I can realize that he had put me in this place with this company so I can work online. I can work at home. I can work from the hospital. I can work from wherever I want and still support our family. Um, so it's been pretty amazing seeing God's hand in that and knowing that, you know, I had my plans, we had our plans and, and the whole time God was preparing us for, for this moment in our life so that he was setting us up so we could sustain ourselves financially. So it's, pretty, it's been a, it's, it's a story of, uh, you know, faith and perseverance and, um, and, and being able to look back and, and know that, uh, you know, him not feeling good was a blessing. Him not feeling good was, you know, his body's way of telling him and God's saying, you know, you get get this done. You're stage three. <laughs> let's let's get this taken care of. And um, as hard as it is, you know, I think that is really an important thing to do too. Is if you're going through something like this, and there's so many people that go through so much, and even so much more than than we are. And this destroys families sometimes financially. It destroys families. You know, I think it's really important to stay grateful in the moment. Um, before I get out of bed every morning, I try to, I try to think of 10 things that I'm grateful for, no matter how hard it is, no matter, you know, how hard the day before is. I try to just think of something little, even if it's little things, you know, even before you go to bed or in the morning and think of 10 things that you can be grateful, grateful for, because it's, it's harder to be stuck in your, in your self, I guess, and in your own problems when you can find that's pretty powerful stuff, Pam. And I, I think um, something that I heard a lot of was faith. 
And was faith a big part of your family prior to all this? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we've always had, we've always had the faith. Um, I've always had it, my kids and, you know, even watching some of my kids go back and grab on to their faith, you know, because they think sometimes in life, you know, your, you know, kids are grown up. I mean, they're all, they're all in their twenties, a couple in their thirties, but, um, you know, sometimes you can lose sight of it or question it. And, um, and, you know, that was a, a, another thing that you can see is your, is your kids going back to that, you know, and grabbing a hold of their faith and, and, and helping, you know, letting that be something to help them get through that as well as each other. I mean, we have an incredible support system, um, with our family, with our friends. Um, and if you're somebody out there that does not, uh, you know, I, I do recommend, you know, reaching out to people. Some people might not know that you need help and I know it's hard. Um, and you might feel like you're weak, but <laughs> I also believe that in our, being strong doesn't mean that you don't need help. Being strong means that you're, you're, that you're vulnerable enough to say that you're weak and that you need help. Um, so make sure you're asking for help, even though it's hard. And, and maybe so if you don't have a big family, if you don't have, you know, the friends to hang on to, get a support system outside of that, the support groups or something. I think what you just said is so powerful. Being strong is being vulnerable, vulnerable enough to ask for help. And that is just so, so powerful. So is that something that was always part of your makeup? I mean, clearly, and, and, and what I mean by that is, so Pam, like you, you mentioned before, like you were a dental hygienist and you started your own business. Um, you know, you got involved in one of those, you know, people call them side hustles or entrepreneurs. Um, I, I, I tend to just, I mean, it's a business you're, you're running a business and you became very successful clearly if you were able to retire from what you were doing before. And so was that something, that statement, was that something that was part of like your makeup as you grew up or, you know, having four kids and six grandchildren and, you know, having this, all this going on, or was this something that was just something that you learned going through this experience with Steve? Yeah, so I have a very strong personality. I am, when faced with, I, I was going to say adversity, but really it's just my personality. <laughs> I'm very fight or flight, and you throw something at me and I'm fighting. I'm fighting. <laughs> I am, I put my head down and I go to fight. I go to work. Um, that's, that's my personality. I didn't do anything to get that way. I feel like God made me that way. That is my makeup. Um, but as far as being vulnerable enough to ask for help, that is not in my makeup. I, I am not one to ask for help. That is hard for me. Um, it's hard. It's hard. I, I'm very open, but you know, there's times that I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to pick up that phone. I don't want to tell one more person how Steve's doing, <laughs> you know? I, I don't want to do it. It's like, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk about how he is, and I won't answer the phone. But sometimes that's exactly what you need. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you need to say, I am falling apart over here. I can't do it anymore. Um, I need help. I need somebody to come clean my house. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't do it all. Um, so, so so was there uh, a moment that you can look back at now that that happened that you said like and you know whether you hit the wall the wheels fall off or you just break down and you realize like hey I I can't do this all alone and I've got to ask for help I gotta you know have a network and so was there a moment that that happened that you can look back today I mean hindsight we always say is 2020 right but maybe there's a point where that happened and what was that yeah, so, you know, we have a hashtag for our family. It's called Peroni Strong. And um, we have a, I have a picture on my Instagram page, and my daughter got these shirts made up, and it says, hashtag Peroni Strong. And on the back it says, in this family, nobody fights alone. And um, 
And I looked at that picture and I was like, I laughed to myself and I was like, oh, I sure don't feel strong. And, um, and that's, I think when it hit me is that being strong doesn't mean that, um, that I'm, that I've got it all together. Being strong doesn't mean that, um, I'm not sad. It doesn't mean that I'm, um, you know, having a hard time. It doesn't mean that, you know, and I even feel like too, it's something that I've been coming to realize is that like there's a grieving process with this. I feel like there's a grieving process. Like, and I feel like I'm kind of getting to that right now is like nine months of this and we're coming to an end. And I feel like there's kind of a grieving process that you go through of like, um, like your life before, you know, before cancer and your life now. And, um, it was like something was taken away from you, but, um, that, that sounds like a bad thing. I mean, I think, you know, we're going to all come out stronger and better and, um, closer and more faithful. And I feel like we're a living example of, um, of faith and endurance for people, but, but you still have, I think, a little bit of a grieving thing that you go through. And, um, so... I guess my point is, is I saw that picture in, you know, the hashtag and I started thinking about what it meant to be strong. And I think that was the moment that, um, I realized that, you know, I need to ask for, you know, help more. And I mean, I got somebody to come clean my house. I was like, I just, you know what, I need, I need to come, get somebody to come clean my house. That's one thing I can do for myself is get somebody every couple of weeks to come clean my house. So, um, you know, we were in the hospital, uh, the last time he was in, uh, you know, I called my sisters and I called my kids and I said, I need people to bring food up here. Hospital food sucks. I mean, that's, let's just say it, it sucks. It's horrible. Don't leave <laughs> anything to doubt you. here, Pam. Like, be honest, be honest. <laughs> yeah. It is horrible. And I'm like, you guys, I need, I need people to bring food up here. I need dinners up here because... He, he can't eat this crap, and um, nobody should have to eat it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think I think it was kind of that moment where I saw that picture, and you know, people tell me all all the time, "You're so strong, you're so strong, you're so strong." Well, yeah, the only reason I'm strong is because I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but you know, my faith, my family. Oh, we have a huge support system. I mean, we have. You know, I have a net, large network on social media. My husband has a lot of friends from work, and, I mean, they did a huge fundraiser for him. Over 500 people came to this fundraiser. Um, and my daughter works for Fry um, Wagner. It's a moving company, and they do a fundraiser every year for somebody that has cancer, and they chose Steve to do the fundraiser for him. So we have a huge support system, and people are praying for us all the time. People will come up to me and go, I know you don't know me, but I have my whole church praying for you. So huge, huge, huge support system. Well, I think and it's... Then that is, and then that is my strength. <laughs> Well, what you just said, and hopefully for those listening at home understand this, and I think if you've never gone through pancreatic cancer or any cancer, it's hard to relate to. But I think what you said is just so freaking powerful, Pam, because, and, and this is a common theme with caregivers and survivors, is this support system. And I've always said, like, what we do here, if this is a 30-second plug, is like, you know, we hopefully connect and share stories and provide financial aid and blankets, and, you know, that's what we do for patients, gives people hope that they are not alone. And that is so powerful. And But having support is so, so, so critical, I believe, to people fighting this thing and beating this thing because no one should fight alone. I mean, it's it's daunting enough, you know, yeah. to have this diagnosis. And we know what the statistics are. We know the reality of that. Right. But then to ask someone to do that alone is just, it seems impossible. 
So you have to rely on support. And I think something that you said, and you said it a couple of times, you know, just even having someone come clean the house and how critical that is and, and, you know, just how helpful that is and the food, you know, I mean, these are simple things. I don't think anyone is, was asking for like, you know, roll the Brinks truck up and, and, you know, something along those lines, it could be something as simple as just being there to talk to someone or go for a walk or walk the dog uh, of someone who's battling or, you know, stop over and bring, you know, a home cooked fresh meal, you know, that goes such a long way. It's just really, really powerful statement that you just said. So I appreciate you being honest with us and, and sharing that perspective, because that is so powerful. And hopefully the folks that are listening at home, really take that to stride. I, I think there's no, you know, I use a lot of terms, but there's no awards for being the most macho when you're battling cancer and in this case pancreatic cancer alone right there's no hero award there's no award handed out at the end for someone who battles this alone you know and doesn't seek support or get support or have friends or family there for them and i think on the flip side what you just said also is powerful because there's so many times where we we ask people like what's the most impactful thing that you can do for someone that's battling. And like you just said, like bring food or, you know, something so simple. So for those that are listening that have friends, you know, that are battling and whether it's pancreatic cancer or other cancer, the simplest things, which we may think are really not that big of a thing could probably be the most impactful things in that person's life. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I do see people, I see people who, who, I mean, I, sad I think when you know you're at the infusion center or at the in the walk in the hallways and the people in the rooms that they never have visitors I mean it's hard <laughs> it's hard being in there anyway and then um, you know just just being with the person too you don't have to you don't have to entertain them you don't have to talk to them being with them I think it's so important too it doesn't have to be anything great just you know being present powerful stuff what are maybe one or two things that have really gotten you through the last nine months that you could share with our listeners at home maybe there's someone who's beginning their fight it could be a caregiver it could be the person actually going through that or it's someone that's in it right now and, you know, they're looking kind of like, what do I do next or how do I get through this? Yeah, as far as a caregiver standpoint, I think, um, you know what, I think mindset is huge. I think you have to get your mind in the right place first and, you know, be be positive and organized. And help help them with, I mean, as far as like, and another thing I didn't talk about is chemo brain. I think that something I don't know if people that gets talked about, but yep. it's hard for people who are going chemotherapy. They get the chemo brain. I mean, they're on medi- You know, well, he's he was through all kinds of anesthesia, which causes you know it's really hard for, on your memory to remember things. Um, and then you have chemo brain on top of that, which causes memory problems. It causes, like, sometimes it's hard to process things. Sometimes it's hard to um, uh, even remember what medicines you're supposed to take. So as a caregiver, you know, get yourself a pill, get, get them a pill box and organize all their pills, weekly pills, so that everything is right there for them. You know, I could, I could have seen him taking all the wrong medicine. We have a cabinet full of medicine that, he was on it one time or another that he doesn't take anymore. So, I mean, I got rid of that. So you really have to keep track of their medicines. Um, you know, get a pill box, put all their pills in a pill box, um, find out what foods they like and what they can eat, and, you know, get organized with your meals, I think, and your mental mindset. You know, I think your mindset has to be so... Um, positive and so um, 
super focused on and getting the vision of being better of of your if you're the caretaker of your dad or your mom or whoever it is is that because they're going to need they're going to need that to see that through you because it's going to be hard for them to see that it's going to be hard for them to see that they are going to get better um, that there is going to be an end to that so I think it's real important that you create a vision for them of um, that this isn't forever this isn't forever um, you have to see yourself as being better. You have to see yourself as all the treatments are done, the cancer is over, I beat this, and this is what our life's going to look like. So get a vision of what your life is going to look like when all this is done. Um, because it's hard going through all this and you're going to feel like shit every single day. And um, you have to have a mental mindset of there's an end to this. This is not forever. Do you journal, Pam, or do you meditate in the morning? Um, I do not journal. I, but you know what? I am. That's how you find me is on Instagram. Um, I feel like through Facebook and Instagram, sometimes I do kind of. I feel like I blog some of my feelings and my stories on there. Um, uh, so I don't journal, but I do. You know, I do pray. I do. Um, you know, I have some prayer books that I do, and like I said, in the morning I do, I, you know, before I even open my eyes, get out of bed, I try to do my 10 things that I'm grateful for. Um, so that is my that is my meditation and my prayer life, and, um, you know, I have a app on my, I get an encouragement for today in my mailbox every day, and I don't, I can't say I read that every day, but I do read that. And, um, and I have a friend that sends me... Um, I had a really good idea, too. I have a, a friend that, science, that sends me a Bible verse every morning. So that's something simple. It's something little that you can do for other people, too. Um, and as far as, like, being a positive, too, when I thought I thought of this with somebody else that I think her sister was going through humor or something, but um, I thought how nice it would be for people that are going through chemo or even, you know, cancer at all that don't have anybody to get... Um, some kind of encouragement, just like a handwritten or typed out or something, piece of mail every day from somebody with some kind of encouraging words, some kind of a Bible verse, something motivational, something, you know, cheery, whatever. There's a little something in the mail every day. That was just the thought I had. Well, I, I, I think what you just said, but you didn't come out and say it is, and I've heard this many times and I heard it when my dad was sick was if you're caring for someone who's ill, the caregivers can't become chronically ill. And that's what happens a lot of time. Like you become ill caring for chronically ill people. And if you're not hundred percent, like how can you care mm-hmm. for someone who's sick? And I think that self care and that self awareness and mental Strength is a big part in battling cancer and in particular pancreatic cancer for this matter. So if you're not mentally strong yeah, daily, you know, and working on that, just like you would like fitness, if you need to run a marathon, you need to run, you know, five days a week, six days a week. Well, if you're helping someone beat pancreatic cancer, you need to be both mentally and physically strong. And I probably would go on a limb here and say the mental aspect is probably more important than the physical. You know, you don't need to be uh, in marathon shape to be a caregiver to help someone battle pancreatic cancer. But I think if you are in mental marathon shape, just came up with a term, mental marathon shape, to battle pancreatic cancer as a caregiver that's probably 10 times more powerful, right? right. So I, I think that's yeah. really, really powerful stuff which is shared here. So I, I really appreciate that honesty with our audience. And some of those ideas are, are awesome. And I love the one that you just, I just made a note here, encouraging letters to patients. So, you know, I think you've said some amazing things here today on the podcast about, you know, from a caregiver perspective, and even if you are the caregiver or you have someone that you know that is battling pancreatic cancer or another cancer, just some little things that you can do. I mean, 
how much time does it take to write an encouraging letter to a friend who's maybe battling cancer or even to send them an email? You know, email is probably a little bit less personal, but you know, I know there's plenty mm-hmm. of people that I know that are still working that are battling cancer and, you know, but a letter, I think a handwritten letter can go a long way of encouragement and just let them know that you're thinking of them. That's so powerful. Yeah. So, so powerful. So I, I appreciate you sharing that with our audience. I've got a couple questions here for you. What is your sure. definition of pancreatic cancer? How would you define it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you want to know the first words that came to my mind? Absolutely. <laughs> it's a bitch. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Probably not the pro- most profound, but... <laughs> That's how I divide it. <laughs> but you're laughing about that, though, which I think is um, the right response, though, Pam, because yeah. I have seen, and we've heard this on the podcast, there's been a couple survivors that have gotten through their journey with laughter and comedy. We had a guy who every time he went in for infusion, he he said it was like the comedy hour or the comedy four hours or eight hours, as long as his infusion was there at the hospital. And that's what got him through it. You know, that's what got him through that ordeal. And I think you have to have some humor and levity in all of this. Oh, you do. Yeah. I know one thing that we kind of joke about me and my husband is, you know, we'll be talking about whether he should do this or that or whatever. And I'm like, oh, my God, just do it. It's not going to kill you. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. Some people sometimes look at me. And I'm like, hey, it's our joke. It's our inside joke. Yeah, but so. that's that's a very real. I mean, that's the reality of this. I mean, and that's yeah. the thing that I think you can't judge anyone because they're not in your shoes, so they don't know what you're going through, right? And that's another important thing here to share with the audience is you just never can assume what someone is feeling or going through because you just don't know. And I mean, yeah, people have gone through the similar battles, but every battle is different. And there are things that can be learned and shared and that work for everyone possibly. But there's no one size that fits all. And that's, that's really, really important. My next question for you, and I've just got one more after that is what advice would you give to a caregiver right now? Let's say there's a lady listening. It could be in Missouri, could be in Connecticut, could be in California. And her husband was just diagnosed similar to Steve. What's probably the most important advice you could give that person? Um, you know, I, I would have to say, Number one, make sure you're working with somebody who, um, a certain, see a surgeon that if, you know, if they're eligible for the Whipple, see a surgeon that does them all the time, like I said before. Um, number two is go, you have to go with your gut, you know, on a lot of this stuff. If you feel like something's not right, um, you need to, you need to follow that, follow your instincts and listen to, listen to that voice inside of you. I think anything, anytime you're dealing with a medical issue at all, you know, not even just cancer is, is you really need to listen to your, to your gut and, you know, try to get, um, referrals from people, talk to people, find out, you know, who's good with this and who's good with that. Um, so that as far as a medical standpoint and, you know, if you have people in the medical family or, People in your family or friends that are in the medical community, go to them and ask because they know more than maybe even who your doctor is referring you to. So you don't have to just simply take the referrals from the doctor that you saw. Go outside of that and get input from other people about who, you know, is the best in your area. Um, And then get, I would get a notebook, um, write down all the names of the people. I actually got a binder and I have printouts of everything with appointments, chemo, test results, nutrition, all that stuff. Um, And get your support system. Get your support system set up. Make sure that you have people that are surrounded 
surrounding you that can um, help you, you know, pick up the pieces and be there um, for your husband and be there for him. I mean, with the appointments, with the decision-making process, which probably most people will, but even, um, like, with the medications that they're on, like, help help him keep track of the medications and get your head and get your, your mindset in the right place. Powerful stuff, Pam. Last question for you, and I know you've mentioned it a couple times how social media has really been kind of a positive outlet for you in, you know, telling your feelings and sharing your story. Where is the best place if there's someone listening to this podcast and they want to reach out to you and connect with you? I know you mentioned Instagram, Facebook. Is that the best place best place for them to connect with you? Yeah, that would be a great place to connect with me. So, yeah, on Instagram, I am, and all my, my contact information is on Instagram too because it is a business page. So I think my email address is on there and my phone number is on there. So that would be um, the easiest place. And that is, my Instagram handle is at Pamela Lovely. It's P-A-M-A-L-O-V-E-L-Y. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Pam, thank you for being on the Project Purple podcast and sharing your story and your experience with you and Steve and pancreatic cancer. And I'm just going to leave you with this quote that I mentioned before, which I, I just, I wrote this down and this, this hit me right in the head, like so powerful, which your definition of being strong is being vulnerable enough to ask for help. So with that, Pam, thank you once again for being a guest. And that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Thank you.